0: Well, before We're going to be in Colossians 3 again tonight, but before you turn there, let me ask you to turn to James chapter 4. We'll be flipping around a little bit more tonight. James chapter 4. I know that was two, two or three sermon series ago, but we'll be there a little bit. But before we look at James, I want to open tonight by telling you a, a little story. It's a story about four different people. Waking up one January morning in the same set of circumstances but with very different reactions. And as you listen to this story made up, I want you to be thinking about the answer to two questions. Number one, what is the key to their behavior? Why are they acting the way they're acting? And number two, why are they responding the way they're responding? It's really the same question. What's the key to their behavior and why are they responding the way they're responding? Here it goes. One January day, a family wakes up at 6 a.m. in the morning. As the alarm clock goes off, individuals in this family start pulling themselves out of bed and notice that during the night, four to seven inches of snow have fallen on the ground. The husband sees the snow and immediately turns on the radio, listening for the traffic report, and hears how the traffic, tie- have already start- the traffic has already started to get tied up, and he becomes anxious and worried. The wife, on the other hand, gets out of bed, and she looks out the window and sits for just a few moments beholding the beauty of the snow. As she looks, she smiles and reflects on the pleasure and the beauty of the event. Their two aged children get up knowing that last night there was a predicted snowstorm, so they leap out of bed, they rip open the curtains and are delighted to see how much snow there is and that it's the kind of snow for snowmen. As dad makes his way out to the car, he begins scraping off his car and notices It's quite obvious. His neighbor shoveling, grumbling, mumbling under his breath obscenities about this snow. What's the difference in how these different folks responded? All right, what's the key to their behavior? We've got five different people, or four groups of people. Each in the same set of circumstances, yet each one is responding differently. What is the difference between their behaviors? The Bible is the world's most effective document in exposing the motives of human behavior. There are hundreds of passages in the scripture, from Genesis all the way to the end, that describe and shine light that penetrates into the mysteries of psychology and explains why humans do what they do. But that's quite a question, isn't it? Why do we do what we do? What is it that drives human behavior? Why is it that some people delight in the snow and others curse the snow? Well, you could say, oh, well, their environments are different, right? One man in the story, he had to get up and go to work. So the snow makes his day and his life harder while the mom and the children get to enjoy a break from the pace of everyday life. And and that's true but that's a shallow surfacey answer to our question about motive and human behavior what's going on is is much deeper and we need to ask what is really going on in the heart and if you're familiar with James as many of you are you will remember that when we studied this passage in James chapter 4 we saw that there's penetrating insight on why humans behave in certain ways. James 4, especially verses 1 and 2, especially give us some of the clearest insight on dysfunctional human behavior. So tonight, let's start by reading these first two verses. And you'll see how this connects to Colossians in a moment. James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Let's pray after hearing God's word. Father, I ask that tonight that you do what no human can do. You know our hearts. You know the good and the bad. You know the mixture of motives that we bring even into this room tonight. And you love us still. So, Father, because of that love and for your glory, would you please help us to grow? Help each one of us to grow, even even those among us who didn't come expecting to grow. Help us. Give us attentiveness. Give us focus. And let us see truth. Most of all, let Christ be glorified as our Savior, and let us acknowledge Him as King. Bless the preaching, and the reading, and the hearing, and the receiving of your word, I pray. Amen. So back to James. According to these two verses, if this is a small group, I'd make you answer. But according to these two verses, what is the source of human behavior? What does James say drives our responses? Passion, very, we're small enough, right? The passions that are going on, right? It's the desire that leads to to every sin and to every wrong behavior. James says it's desire. You desire and you do not have. You have passions, all right, desires that are going on in your heart and they are causing all sorts of waves in your life. To put it in another way, you have unmet desires, unmet passions. Or we could perhaps put it another way: when he says you covet and you cannot obtain, we could say you want something, but you can't get it. You can't get what you want. It's all about desire. Now think back for a moment to our little January story. What was different about these characters? Well, it's how their circumstances affected what they want. Their circumstances, because they had different desires and different expectations, interfered or improved upon their circumstances, right? Dad immediately thought about snow and traffic, and he got anxious, right? Why? He wanted a worry-free commute to work, and he didn't want to be the guy that's late, right? He wants to be trustworthy, Mom, on the other hand, she smiles. She sees pleasure and beauty. Snow means fun and memories with the kids, a break from the grind. But the snow also reminded her she had eyes to see God's beauty and God's creation, so she worshipped. The kids, they rejoiced. Why? Their desires were met, right? No school, snow cream, hot chocolate, all day entertainment, right? They got the desires of their heart. What about the cranky neighbor, right? To him, the snow did nothing but interfere with his life. Snow has to be shoveled, that's inconvenient. Snow has to be scraped, and that's a pain. Snow has to be driven over, and that's frustrating, so he curses. See the difference? Each person is interpreting their circumstances, his circumstances, according to his or her desires. And James is teaching that desires are the key to all of our behavior. In fact, James uses a lot of the words that we've been studying in Colossians chapter 3 over the last several weeks. So let's flip back over to Colossians 3 with this intro on human motivation from James Colossians chapter 3. We've been taking an in-depth look for really for several weeks now over this list that James has given us on things that we're called to to put to death. And we've been looking specifically starting in verse 5 about certain sinful attitudes and some sort of actions that we're called to to put to death. Look there in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then the phrase that we'll study tonight, and covetousness, covetousness, which is idolatry. All right, so we've been trying to cultivate a murderous attitude toward the attitudes and the actions of our heart that don't belong to our new resurrection life, that belong to our old life, back when we were dead, dead to God and dead in our sins. We want to put that life away, the life that led to our death. A few weeks back, we worked our way through this first list here in verse 5 and then later in verse 8, and we learned about the importance of killing sinful sexual desires and killing any passion that's out of control or or desire that is evil. But we kind of rushed over and skipped over this last phrase, covetousness, which is idolatry. And that's where we're going to focus our attention tonight. Because here I think we have one of the clearest and certainly probably the briefest, (laughs) certainly probably, that doesn't make sense, probably the briefest statement or explanations of how idolatry works in our hearts. And so that brings us to our main idea tonight, that we commit idolatry not only when we want wrong things, but when we want things too much. We commit idolatry not only when we want wrong things, but when we want anything too much. Condense this into three points tonight. So let's look at three points together. Point number one, we commit idolatry whenever we want something too much. From beginning to end, the Bible is constantly speaking of idolatry. If you're following along in the CBR reading plan, there are days that we read it in the Old Testament and Ezekiel and in the New Testament and 1 John, right? Same day, totally different parts of the Bible. It's all over the place, right? And it's always in the negative. Of course, idolatry is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, Right? And now, with our insight from Colossians, we know that the tenth commandment, right? As you remember the tenth commandment: "You shall not covet your neighbor's wife." Or, right, right. So we also would include the tenth commandment, which fits into the idolatry category. And this is clearly connected to the great commandment that Jesus taught. You remember. You shall love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All. That's the issue of idolatry. It's partial love. When we love something else that takes away from loving God rightly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your total soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. So we commit idolatry not only when we bow down to little golden statues or little devices, right, or whatever our thing is. But we also commit idolatry whenever we want something or love something more than God. You see? It seems to me that we could say that there's two types of idolatry in the Bible. There's the big, bad, obvious, silly stuff, like where we worship golden calves, right? There's that type of idolatry, which is commit and Israel fell into it in all different varieties, right? Where we worship the wrong God. But then there's also this other kind of idolatry where we want good things too much. It's much more subtle, isn't it? Remember, an idol starts off with, what do we learn? A desire. It begins with a desire. We can see this even in Colossians chapter 3. If you, if you think about all these, all these sins, verse 5, that are listed together, right after evil desire, we're told, right after passion, we're told, stay away from covetousness because it's idolatry. I think all these words are fitting together, describing the same category, the same wicked concoction that makes up our heart so often, right? Idolatry starts off with desires that go bad. And these desires are often good. It could be something like this. I want to have a godly marriage. Or, I I wish that my husband would be more attentive and more affectionate for me. Or, I want a husband or a wife. Or, I want my children to be well-behaved, right? Are these familiar desires? I want my children to be happy. These are legitimate desires. In fact, these are desires that God has, that God shares for us any one of these desires we can trust that he he desires good things but can they go wrong they certainly can I recently had the opportunity to uh not not too recently talk with talk with a woman who came to me to talk about some of the struggles that she was having with anger and she told me she said my greatest desire in the world is for my children to be godly well they weren't and so she yelled and screamed at them, right? Do you see how good desires, that's a good desire for your children to be godly. God teaches us to desire that, right? But it can go bad, can it? Idolatry happens when good desires go bad. I think it was Mark Driscoll who put it so clearly. He said, you take a good thing and you make it a God thing and it becomes a bad thing. A good thing becomes a God thing, and then it's a bad thing. You could picture it like this. Picture your desires like holding something in your hand, open, right? And, and if you hold good desires in an open hand, the desire for children that are well-behaved, the desire for a fun, intimate, uh, happy marriage, the desire for retirement, Right? You hold any of those in a hand, and if you hold it open, you're fine. Which means God can take it, or it can fall out. Right, Open hand, you're fine. Where we get into trouble is when that desire turns into a demand. I have to have it. Don't touch it. Don't touch my desire, Right, my precious, my precious. And now we're into trouble. When we, when we squeeze it, Right, when we white knuckle clench it, Suddenly, what you wanted becomes something that you must have. So much so that you'll even sin to get it and to keep it. So much so that you'll be miserable if you don't have it. And if you lost it, you would despair. A desire becomes a demand. And then we're getting into trouble. You go from, it would be nice if my son would do better in school, to, you must do better in school or people will think our family is dumb. You go from it'd be nice if we could communicate better to I'm going to yell at you when you don't communicate well. I must have this job. I must have better health. I must have his approval. I can't live without it. And suddenly, our desires have become a demand, and that demand has become a need, and now we're in total trouble because we're needing something other than God. Do you see how this works? Idolatry is more than the little buddha statue on the idol or a uh, buddha statue on the mantle it's going on in our heart and that's what coveting is isn't it covetousness which is idolatry it's wanting something that you don't have too much isn't it In fact, instead of covetousness, there are some translations, probably some of your translations, that translate the word here for greed, right? Which indicates that there is an inappropriate desire for more. That's what greed means. An inappropriate desire for more. You see, the problem is not necessarily that we want the wrong things, which is true sometimes. The problem is that we want things wrongly. It's so not that we want the wrong things all the time, but that we want things wrongly. This helps us understand how all these sexual sins went bad a few words before, right? It's how all this sexual trouble comes, right? The desire for sex, I think we talked about this briefly. I, might, I don't remember if we got to this. The desire for sex is not wrong, God made sex. God gives humans desires for sex. He makes all this possible. He created sexual desire. It's not wrong to want sex, even for a single person. It's wrong to want sex wrongly. And that's where sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire come in. It's wrong to want sex wrongly with the wrong person or at the wrong time or for the wrong reason or in the wrong manner or in the wrong context, right? And this helps us see and expose the link between covetousness and idolatry. The problem with our sexual sinful desires is that they become greedy. It's not just that there's a a God-given sexual desire. There's a sexual greed that drives us to sin. And that's not something that God's given us. And greed is the opposite of thankfulness. Right? The greed becomes unthankful. We refuse to be content with what God has given us now whether that's our singleness, whether that's our spouse, whether that's our particular brand of our perhaps unsatisfying sex life, right? But remember, is it wrong to want sex? Is it wrong to want a spouse? Is it wrong to want a more satisfying sex life? No, but covetousness and greed fail to acknowledge God's goodness And how good he's been to you in your particular circumstances. Do you see? By the way, I don't choose the topics. I preach the Bible, right? So if this is uncomfortable, it's there. It's in the text, right? We fail to acknowledge God's goodness. And we just want more or we want something different. Now, I'll change the names to protect the guilty. But let's take, switching gears a little bit, it's not a sexual illustration. Everybody breathe a sigh of relief, right? Take, for example, an instance that may or may not have happened in our home recently. A child of mine, who will remain nameless, had a birthday where she received dozens, I mean dozens of presents, right? Grandparents are crazy, they are crazy. They do not have to live with the toys which they bring into our home. One precious grandmother gave us 100, no, two packs of 100 balls. That's 200 balls. Do you know where those balls are? Everywhere. Everywhere, right? Haley uh, is having having some pain in her hip and she's got this, this yellow lacrosse ball that she uses to massage. And she said, Nathan, be careful, don't drop it. And I dropped it and I lost it. And she said, don't lose it. And I lost it and it rolled under the counter. It rolled under a desk and I looked under there. There were like 70 different plastic balls, the exact same shape of the... What am I talking about? All right. So a daughter of mine or a child of mine who remained nameless, opened dozens of birthday presents, right? One after another. And her sister sat patiently watching. An hour later, non-birthday sister, begin playing with like one of the oldest toys in the whole house, right? I think it was like a doctor kit or something. And then birthday sister... Was suddenly gripped with this new desire for an old toy because non birthday sister was playing with it, right? We've all seen this before, right? This is unique, this is not unique to my home. And so she tried to take it from her sister. So we immediately, as excellent parents, intervened and said, No, 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 turn around, enjoy the heap of toys that you just got for your birthday, and leave your sister alone. What do you think happened? She cried. <laughs> and there's part of me that's like, I'll take everyone else's toy and I'll throw them in the dump. Right, I didn't do that, but right. But will you see how crazy it is? Is this not exactly what we do? She, not only that, right? Because she was she was setting me up for the sermon illustration because that's what kids do, right? The birthday child, while she was neglecting all of her new toys, a few minutes later, we, my wife and I turned around and we saw birthday child sitting there and looking at the old toy like this right she couldn't play with all the new toys one of the toys was a hundred dollars worth right and she's looking at this old toy she's just looking longingly she did not see all of the good things that had been given to her that's exactly how greed and covetousness become idolatry The problem is not necessarily that we want things. The problem is that we want things too much. And it goes crazy in our hearts. And it brings destruction and pain. We choose to be unsatisfied with whatever it is that God has given us. If it seems good or not is not the point. The point is that we don't see God as good. And then we turn longingly looking for what he hasn't given us and we're sad. Which leads us to our next point. Idols are never satisfied. Idols are never satisfied. Never in the history of the world has a man coveted something, possession, position, pleasure, and then received it and then said, this is it. I'm totally satisfied, right? That's not that's not how it works, because idols are never satisfied. They always want more. Flip over to Ephesians 4, a parallel passage to Colossians 3, Galatians, Ephesians. You can see some of this dynamic, it's a little clearer in Ephesians. Ephesians 4:19. Idols always want more. Look at this dynamic of sinners in verse 19. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I like how the NIV translates it. Listen carefully if you you don't have an NIV. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. That's what covetousness is, isn't it? A continual lust for more. That little phrase drives our entire economy, doesn't it? Right. That's how our lusts work, which is why the Bible calls them and compares them to our appetites. They get hungry, so you feed them, and then what happens? They get hungry again, and it continues. The continual lust for more More food, more pleasure, more free time, more attention, more likes, more insurance, more sleep, more money, more weight loss, more, 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 more. You look down here at verse 24 and you see that these desires are liars. They're deceitful desires, Ephesians 4, 24. They lie to us, right? They lie saying, you'll be happy if you just find me. If you just indulge, just one more purchase, just one more click, just one more image, right? Greedy lust blinds us. It can drive a man away from a beautiful loving wife into a dark world of pornography, into the arms of another woman. It can blind a woman into thinking that she is the problem in the marriage because her husband doesn't pay attention to her, that she needs to be more attractive, that she needs a makeover, that she needs new clothes, that she needs to lose weight, can blind a teenager into thinking she has to compromise just so she doesn't have to live without his approval. This doesn't work. Our idols are never satisfied, and they don't satisfy us. They can't. Solomon came to this conclusion... Solomon was a guy that had the opportunity, the very unique opportunity, to taste all of the pleasures, <laughs> nearly all of the pleasures of the world in great proportions. And he concluded like this, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing, it, and behold, it was all vanity, striving after the wind. And there's nothing to be gained under the sun. The pursuit of idols is like wind chasing. It's like trying to be a wind catcher. You don't do it, right? You don't win. It's a fool's errand. We could put this in theological terms though, couldn't we? The reason that idols can't satisfy, the reason idols can't deliver, the reason that we're never satisfied when we get them is that only Christ can satisfy us. That is a theme that begins with the river that shows up in the Garden of Eden and the river that ends in the Revelation and all throughout the Scriptures that only God alone can satisfy the desires of the human hearts. I hope you've tasted that. My life totally changed when I really tasted that for the first time. Only God can satisfy. Jesus was so concerned with teaching this to his disciples. He talked about it all the time in these strange metaphors, right? Do you remember what he said? He said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And then he says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You see, the pleasures of the world, they can satisfy for a moment. God has created a lot of really great stuff. And even, we, even when we misuse it, pleasure can come. But man, it is short. It is short-lived. You get thirsty again. And Jesus says, I'm not just giving you a glass of water to drink. Jesus says, I'm establishing in your heart a water fountain. I'm establishing in you a fountain of living water. Which is why later in John chapter 7, Jesus boldly, we could say arrogantly if he wasn't right. He boldly proclaims, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's referring to the Spirit. God himself dwelling in us to satisfy us. Friends, our idols cannot satisfy because only Jesus can satisfy and the more that we grow in that understanding and the more we become convinced of that truth, we will be far better skilled in our murderous attack against idolatrous desires in our heart. Because what I find, what I found in my life is that my idols constantly change shape. I think I'm honed in on one. Eh, another one pops up. Changes his tactic, right? Not that they're living things, but... I, I go after one and some some new one comes up because Satan is constantly creative. He is on the prowl. Only Jesus can satisfy. And this brings us to our third point. How is it that we battle idolatry? With contentment. That's one way. That's the closest in the text, so we'll do that tonight. We battle idolatry with contentment. We battle this covetousness with thanksgiving. We murder our idols with the weapons of contentment. We slay them by talking back to them instead of focusing on what we don't have. We mock them as we celebrate the good things that God has given us. I know I'm jumping around quite a bit tonight, but let's go over to James 1 again. Pastor James has, is talking about, again, many of the same desires that Paul is talking about in Colossians and Ephesians. James 1, verse 13. He's talking about difficulties and trials in our lives, right? That's often the circumstance that our idols come up in, right? When it's hard, some difficulty, some pain, And he's also talking about desires that lead to temptation. And then he even talks about contentment. Listen, let's just read all this. Verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own, there's the word, desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we have this same desire-sin dynamic that's going on here in verse 14, right? So we're seeing this in multiple places, that sin, our desires are what lead us to sin. When our desires go bad, Satan tempts us, we could say, by appealing to our desires. He tempts us by appealing to our desires. He cannot tempt you with something you do not desire. It does not work, right? But then look at verse 17. James says that Satan gives temptation, which leads to death. But then God, on the other hand, he, however, is the giver of good gifts. Think about how this works. Every time that we turn to the deceitful advertisement of an idol, every time that we buy into whatever lie they're selling, we are rejecting God. We're rejecting what God has given us and we're saying, you have not given me enough. That is not enough. You are not enough. I need to supplement. I need to go somewhere else. I need more pleasure. I need more intimacy. I need more comfort. I need more safety. I need more fun. You're not fun enough. You're not enough. The text says, where does every good gift come from? God. You go to Satan, what are you going to get? Death. Yeah, he wraps it up, he puts a bow on it, but it gives birth to death. God gives gifts. Every gift that you enjoy, if it's a legitimate pleasure, is from God. And he deserves praise for it. So where do we find pleasure? We find it in God. Friends, we are called to put off idolatry. We're called to put off covetousness and instead put on a sense of awe and thanksgiving at all that God has done. We have no right to turn around from our heap of presence and shake our fist at God saying, Why are you so stingy? I want that. We're called to put on contentment, which says, yes, I may have my problems, I may have unmet desires, those desires might even be good and righteous, but what God has given me is enough. What God has given me is enough. And I'm going to respond to this situation, even though it's hard, Even though I don't understand, even though I don't understand the timing and God seems really slow and it seems like that my desires are good, I'm going to respond to the situation in a way that honors Him and pleases Him and recognizes Him as the good, not just the stuff that He can give. When I recognize that everything that I have that is good is from Him, and when I recognize that He's given me all that I need... That's where contentment is found. And that is an attitude that we must cultivate. That does not grow naturally in the human heart. Contentment is that settled decision. this is a settled disposition in your heart that no matter what the situation is, that God is enough, and He's given you all that you need. It's the settled disposition of your heart that no matter what the situation is, God is enough. And he's given you all that you need. And contentment comes from recognizing the good gifts of God in our circumstances. Friends, God does not call you to be without desires. That's not what the Christian faith is about. The Christian faith is about satisfying as many of those righteous desires in God as possible. And that's what heaven will be. Satisfaction. God doesn't call us to be without desires. Remember, he gave them to you. He made your body. He made your heart. He made your personality. He, 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 he has formed you. He understands you. But he calls you to look to him to fill them. He calls you to submit them to him. If he made you, he can make you whole. He can make you happy. He knows how your heart needs to run. I've used this illustration before, but we do it all the time in our house, so I'll use it again. About every four months or so, breakfast devotions, me or Haley will say, All right, kids, can a car run on chocolate milk? No. Right? Can a car run on coffee? maybe. No, right? What's a car run on? Gas. Cars were made to run on gas. You pour anything else in that gas tank, what's going to happen? It's not going to work. You were made to know and enjoy God. And when you turn elsewhere, you will find depression, discouragement, despair, fear, anxiety, and struggle. You were made to know God. And he calls you to trust him And to look to him to satisfy. While I was writing this, I couldn't help but think back to the temptation of Jesus. You remember the temptation of Jesus there in Matthew chapter 4? It's where Satan had his best shot to ruin God's plan. I guess I can't speak authoritatively on this, but from what I understand, it seems like it was probably like his big moment. So he was throwing all he had at Jesus. His first plan failed. Second temptation failed. His third and final temptation, what did he tempt Jesus with? Idolatry. Worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He tempted him with covetousness. You don't have enough. You should want more the text says that again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory he appealed to Jesus's good and right desire to be king to rule over the world that he made didn't he he appealed all he had to do was to worship someone else commit idolatry and he could have the lie went and it was a lie What did we see straight through it he could have more but remember jesus already had a kingdom he came teaching that the kingdom was here and satan tempted him be content with the kingdom you have because the kingdom you have ends in you on a cross i've got a better kingdom i'll give you all the kingdoms of the world satan tempted him to be discontent to take the easy way out. And our Lord's response was the exact opposite of idolatry, wasn't it? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus battled temptation by worshiping God. He slayed an idol by worshiping the only true God and acknowledging God as the giver of gifts. That's what Thanksgiving is. It acknowledges, God, you are good. I'm dependent upon you. This is from you. You get the credit, not me. That's worship, right? When we acknowledge God's goodness in our dental problems, we're saying he is God. He gets the credit right? We acknowledge him as the only giver of good gifts. Friends, unlike you and I, when Jesus was tempted with covetousness and idolatry, he did not waver. He worshiped the one true God, and he waited. He waited. He suffered patiently before his good desires were met and realized. And that's why we worship him. And that's why we need Jesus. Because as John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. We are so creative at finding other things and other people and other beings and other ideas to worship other than God. And so we need forgiveness. We need him to forgive us and cover our sins and cleanse our sin of idolatry and covetousness. And we need his perfect track record. We need his perfect worship record, his perfect idolatry record. We need that credited to our account because only Jesus kept the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Whatever areas that you're struggling to do that with in your life, I pray the Spirit would reveal that to you. And that you would turn to Jesus. And as you turn to him, confessing and acknowledging and submitting to him and pleading for help, do you know what you're doing? You're worshiping. And that's the opposite of idolatry. So let's turn to him, a savior, and be saved. Let's close. Father, we marvel that you've not given us what we deserve. We marvel at your kindness and your grace. And Lord, we thank you that you, for those of us who have faith in you, that you have wiped away our long record of idolatry, our struggle with covetousness, which is so frequent even today. We give you praise for that. But Lord, we long to be free from it. So would you make progress in our hearts? Would you help us as we put to death this sin in all of its ugly forms and mutations? And Father, would you help us to see and delight in no one and nothing other than Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name? Help us, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go and be lights in the world.